welcome to episode 77 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. We're covering um, events in May 2020. We're going over a number of positive court decisions on Article 3, on no recourse to public funds and on immigration fees. We're going to mention the main coronavirus updates before turning to a few bits and pieces from EU law and some important asylum updates. We've got a little bit on British nationality law and policy um, and also some changes to the immigration rules that came into force on the 4th of June. If, um, As ever, if you would like to claim CPD for listening to the podcast, then head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training and sign up as a member where we have a short quiz to help you claim your CPD. Right, CJ, over to you. Yes, we begin, as so often in the Supreme Court, with the case of AM Zimbabwe 2020 UKSC 17. This one was decided just after we recorded the last podcast, so a bit of a delay in discussing it here, but, but still worth doing because it is important. It is about migrants who are very seriously ill and are resisting removal from the UK on that basis. The gist of the issue is that if someone is removed to a country where medical treatment for their life-threatening condition or life-ending condition isn't available and they die a, a lingering death, that might might be a violation of Article 3. And Colin, I say might because previously this argument was very, very hard to rely on because of, of the past case laws. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and there's quite a long sort of line of cases dealing with these um, often very sad, sad cases. Um, and the, the most recent offering we had from Strasbourg was a case called Papushvili against Belgium, which seemed to take a different approach to some of the earlier hardline cases, in particular the case of N against UK. Um, and then there's been this controversy in the UK since Papushvili about how far it does modify the test, um, if at all, and sort of how to interpret this new test. And this new case, um, the AM Zimbabwe case, um, hopefully lays most of that to rest um, and tells us that, yes, the, the test has been softened. It's still not an easy test to meet, but it's not as impossible as it seemed to be um, in, in previous years. Um, and also that the Home Office has to sort of properly engage with the reasons um, and, and the evidence if the um, applicant, the claimant, can put forward a, a case for saying that they've got a sort of prima facie um, or at least substantial um, case to show that there's a breach of, of Article 3. So it's it's really quite a welcome development, um, particularly in some of the saddest cases that we've seen, um, the sort of kidney dialysis type cases, where just almost unbelievably the tribunal and court of appeal has, has said that you know, somebody who arrived in the UK um, and was healthy has subsequently um, fallen very ill. They're receiving dialysis on a you know regular basis, several times a week, and it's accepted by everybody that they'll be dead within weeks, um, even a couple of weeks, if they're removed because they can't get adequate treatment abroad. And and those people are actually losing their cases almost astonishingly. Um, this new case um, says that the test. Um, is a is a lower test and basically seems quite clear that those kinds of cases at least will succeed. For other cases, like on the facts of AM Zimbabwe, where it was um, somebody who suffered from HIV AIDS and the exact treatment they're getting in the UK wasn't available, you know, it's it's not um, an outright success for AM Zimbabwe and it's, it's sent back to the tribunal um, to look again. And it's not guaranteed that they're going to succeed, but they certainly stand a better chance than they did previously. 
Okay, so not necessarily a positive outcome for the individual, but for other migrants relying on Article 3, it's it's good news. Yeah, exactly. And let, let me just sort of go over the test quickly before we move on to the next thing. So it's, it's where you've got um, a, a, a person who's seriously ill in which there are substantial grounds have been shown for believing that he or she, although not at imminent risk of dying, would face a real risk on account of the absence of appropriate treatment in the receiving country or the lack of access to such treatment of being exposed to a serious, rapid and irreversible decline in his or her state of health resulting in intense suffering or to a significant reduction in life expectancy. That's pretty clumsy wording, you know. It's not um, it, it's not a neat test, that. And there are several bits to look at. Um, there's, several, there's doubt about things like um, what, what does a significant reduction in life expectancy actually mean? But it's a, it's an easier test to meet than in the past, at least. Absolutely. You can certainly envisage uh, people falling into that testing with the multiple limbs to it. Let's go to the next case, which is also uh, positive. It is to do with the Home Office policy on denying migrants access to benefits. And that policy has been declared in part unlawful. The context is people with uh, family visas who are often denied access to public funds as a condition of their visa for up to 10 years in some cases uh, before they can get indefinitely to remain uh, five years in other cases. Now, y- you could get that no recourse to public funds, that ban on claim benefits lifted if you were destitute. Um, but the High Court has said that that test is too strict and that the policy needs to cater for people who are at imminent risk of destitution as well so not just people already destitute uh, so that's good and that's a case of uh, w a child 2020 whc 1299 and and potentially really important column for people who need benefits but can't get them yes it is and um, you know, subsequent to that case the home office has indeed modified its policy so uh, it's 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 narrow but it's important for the people that it affects and it, it's the difference between waiting until you already are destitute um, and somebody who's at, as you say, imminent risk of, of destitution. Um, it's particularly relevant with the whole coronavirus um, crisis. You know, as migrants in the UK who, through no fault of their own, uh, are losing their jobs and and in real difficulties. The so not no recourse to public funds policy has been in the news a bit recently with Boris Johnson apparently being unaware of what it was and unaware that migrants aren't able to, to claim benefits. You know, I suppose if you read the newspapers, you'd think that uh, it, it's easy, but in fact, it's it's not. And there is this condition preventing them from doing so. Um, but there's a there's still a big question about whether a more generous sort of comprehensive um, policy is needed, given um, you know migrants are caught in the UK, they're unable to leave and through no fault of their own, um, their, their incomes have been substantially reduced or, or, or have just disappeared. Yeah, because this policy change, as you say, is is narrow in the sense that, it is that it's a change that applies to the family policy, specifically not to no recourse to public funds for people on other visas, and it doesn't affect the lawfulness of the policy as a whole, as, as we've said. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Nevertheless, a positive development, and the good news just keeps coming. The immigration health surcharge is going to be waived for all NHS and social care workers, or so Boris Johnson promises. Many NHS staff already have a a free one-year visa extension, so would be exempt from the health surcharge in the short term. But uh, Johnson Downing Street announced on the 21st of May that the charge will be scrapped in future across the board for all NHS and social care workers, but the details of that are to follow in due course. It's not a legally binding uh, issue yet, just a, a 
political promise. Uh, also on fees, there has been a case on the fee waiver policy. Uh, the Home Office uh, should waive immigration fees, including the health surcharge, if people can't afford them. Instead, the policy has not been to check whether people can afford the fees, but to demand evidence of destitution, which is much stricter. Uh, that, that approach has now been declared unlawful. Um, in an unreported judgment that's available through free movement, I think you got your hands on Colin, the name of the case is Ligason and Secretary of State's Colin, you, I think you run up the case, uh, haven't seen the judgment, uh, another good result? Yeah, it's a really good result, this one. It's, um, yeah, I, I know Alistair McKenzie, who was counselling this, has been um, fighting quite a lot of these um, fee uh, cases. Uh, I think I think the original case of Omar was one of his as well. And um, these are really important because essentially uh, the, you know, the facts on this case and in, in other similar cases are that somebody wants to apply for lawful status or for an extension, but they're unable to because they just can't afford the fee and they're effectively locked out of, of lawful status as are their, as is their family. And it's just, it's very hard to see how that's, um, you know, acceptable public policy outcome. Um, but that was the historic home office position. They've had to modify it due to litigate litigation. And this is another example of them having, having to modify it again. So previously, as you said, they were demanding evidence that um, the person was going to be destitute on the facts of this case that, that the family was being supported by friends and family who who weren't going to turf them out um, if, if they if they paid the fee uh, if they couldn't pay the fee so they, they were never going to be rendered destitute as such but they still couldn't afford to pay it um, and they've they've won their case and it looks like the home office um, might amend the policy in the in the meantime um the Home Office has been given um, permission to appeal. So uh, at the moment, an appeal is being pursued. But there's given that I think it, it's pretty clear when you read the judgment that the policy is pretty bad mess. And I think the Home Office conceded that during the hearing. Um, there's some possibility that the appeal might be abandoned by the Home Office and we might see changes, in which case, of course, we'll, we'll update everybody via the blog. Yeah, but in the meantime, while the appeal is still in the cards, there's no immediate change to the policy. No immediate change, no. Okay. Uh, just a few words on the latest coronavirus developments in the last couple of weeks. Um, the most important, this is all on our um, piece on the website, freemovement.org.uk forward slash coronavirus. Um, but the most important thing to note is that visa extensions for migrants stuck in the UK are now possible out to the 31st of July. Uh, previously, it was the end of May, so more breathing space. Colin, you pointed out on the site that if you have a coronavirus extension already up the end of May, that will be automatically pushed out to the end of July. If you haven't already got an extension, you do need to request it. So it's not automatic. Yeah, that's right. And we don't, we don't know how many people actually know that they need to apply to the Home Office. Um, and there's all sorts we don't know about what's going on at the Home Office. And they're not completely convinced of the legality of these extensions even. But um, yeah, it's really important if people haven't already made that application to the Home Office. It's free. It's online. It's just a simple form to fill in. It's not like one of the horrendous you know, 82-page forms or whatever. Um, so it's a pretty straightforward thing to do, um, but you've got to do it because it doesn't happen automatically um, unless you've already made one um, yeah. previously, in which case it is actually automatic. Also, coronavirus-wise, uh, visa application centres at home and abroad are opening back up from the 1st of June, um, only a handful, and they're not, I think, accepting new applications just yet. They're working through the backlog, but they are starting to reopen. And the uh, importantly, the quarantine for people arriving in the UK, um, compulsory self-isolation for two weeks, kicks in from the 8th of June. 
there's secondary legislation now out on the details of that and the list of exceptions is online. Finally, just to give a plug for an article on the coronavirus situation for people on uh, work visas, specifically tier two and five work visas, uh, Joe Hunt has done a really useful Q&A and that is called Worried that furloughing or redundancy could affect your visa? Here's what you need to know, uh, which does what it says in the tin. Any other coronavirus reflections, Colin? No, I mean, this, the Home Office communications on this still really poor and there's still a lot that we don't know there's been no announcement on concessions for families affected by the minimum income threshold for example um and i kind of i've been expecting that to be announced any day and it still hasn't and i'm just starting to wonder whether there will be any kind of concession on that um and it's the same for other things as well so yeah just just sort of having to wait and see and um it's a it's a very unsatisfactory state of affairs let's go to eu law there is an issue we want to highlight about absences from the UK uh, for people with pre-settled status. And that's, again, particularly relevant in coronavirus times because there might be a lot of EU European residents of the UK who are hunkering down in their home country and so are going to be absent from the UK for a long time. But you want to be careful about that because if you are outside the UK, if you have pre-settled status, uh, as I say, and you are outside the UK for six months or more in any 12-month period... You will not lose your pre-settled status, but you will break the continuous qualifying period that you need to upgrade to settled status. And unless you register again for pre-settled status when on your return after six months, you may never be able to get settled status at all. Uh, and Colin, you, you've been sort of banging the drum about this for a while, I think. Yeah, we, and we've written about this before and, and we put out another thing about it. Um, this one's by, by Karma Hickman. Um, it's, it's something that I'm quite worried about. Probably not that many people will ultimately be affected by it, but some people certainly will. And it's quite complicated. So I've, I've really struggled to get journalists to show any interest in this because it hasn't happened to anybody yet. So they haven't got the kind of human interest stories that they like. But basically, yeah, it's, it's like you say, it doesn't sound like it's too much of a problem because you don't lose your pre-settled status. But it, it's likely to be a big problem because when it comes to applying for settled status, you're suddenly going to find that you're not eligible and you're going to have to leave the country. Um, and you know, if, you've, if you've been outside for more than six months in any 12, that could be for holidays, it could be for sabbatical, it could be for travel, it could be because you got stuck abroad because of coronavirus, then you know, you're suddenly going to um, be ineligible a few years down the line. There won't be any immediate impact, but there will be later. Yeah, taking time bomb potentially. Next, uh there is a case here saying that uh, you can carry on with an old-style EU law appeal even if you're granted settled status. Uh, that case is Amar Amari EEA Appeals Abandonment 2020 UKUT 124 IAC. Again, this may not be relevant to many people at all, but it, it is useful to know for someone like Mr. Amari who is in the process of appealing a refusal of permanent residence that is a status available under sort of pre-Brexit EU law. And he can see that appeal through, even though he now has settled status under the settlement scheme, which uh, I guess is helpful for him because he, he wants to do it and maybe helpful for other people, Colin. Yeah, they would be helpful to some people. And it, it's good that you don't lose your, your right to sort of pursue this. Um, but for most people, um, a, a grant of pre-settled or settled status um, will, will be adequate. So it, it doesn't, it's not going to matter for most people. It will, it will be helpful for some. Another case on the Surinder Singh route, the tribunal continuing to sort of 
tear down the home office barriers to people trying to use Surrender Singh. Uh, in this case, um, it's from the Administrative Appeal Chamber, and it holds that there's no need for the British sponsor to be a qualified person, quote-unquote, uh, for the purposes of EU law in order to bring in family members on their surrender sick, um, which is positive. And the case HK and SSWP, P, brackets PC, 2020 UK UT 73 AAC. Uh, and like as I say, helpful for as long as Surinder Singh is around. Carl. Yeah, it's a good case, but and a nice write up by Bilal Shabir as well for us. Um, I, this is I find this really annoying, really, really annoying because the Home Office has introduced all of these requirements for Surinder Singh, which were obviously in breach of EU law. They did it years and years ago. This particular one was in obvious breach of exactly what what was said in a case called Eind. Um, and, and they've gotten away with it, essentially. You know, it's been years before the tribunal has gotten around to looking at these things properly um, and, and overturning them. And in the meantime, loads of people have um, have had to meet these unnecessary Home Office requirements or been locked out of lawful status. So, yeah, it does make me quite cross that. It might not just be you. Uh, the European Commission has formally accused the government of violating EU citizens' rights. Um, what I mean by that is that they have launched infringement proceedings, which is a process for getting EU member governments to mend their ways. And it applies to the UK, I guess, in, in the transition period. It, it sort of came... I don't think we're exactly sure what the infringement proceedings are about, whether it's about you know, the surrender seeing stuff, whether it's about something else, it, it sort of came, seemed to come out of the blue. And it seems to be about quite technical breaches of, of free movement laws, is maybe my impression. And it's not to, maybe to do with the settlement scheme or settlement status or anything headline grabbing? No, it's quite a um, it's quite interesting as a kind of um, rather opaque process. So um, I remember trying to find out what um, previous proceedings against the UK involved um, a few years back, which were, were later abandoned. And basically it was impossible. The documents weren't open um, and... Yeah, you just couldn't couldn't work out what the hell was going on from the press release and so on. And it, it could be that you know, the, the press release here implies that it's very technical and something to do with appeal rights, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't other stuff in there. And you know, there could be something to do with surrender sing, as you say. There could be perhaps on comprehensive sickness insurance and access to the NHS, which I think the commission was was really quite um, upset about, and a lot of you citizens have been quite upset about as well. Um, so we, we just don't know. Um, and it would be, I, I'm not sure if we're going to find out. Um, I, I guess whatever happens later will point, you know, give us an idea of what was going on at, at the moment. But um, yeah, it's all very opaque. Yeah, I mean, I did ask the commission press office, did they publish the actual uh, document or, or, yeah, did they publish anything other than the press release? And they said no, so... Let's go to asylum. There is new country guidance on Afghanistan and specifically the feasibility of internal relocation to Kabul to avoid persecution. The headline seems to be that internal relocation is a safe and reasonable option for the average asylum seeker, uh, to put it that way, but which is a different position to what the UN Refugee Agency says. But there are a lot of exceptions when you get into the detail. Um, and Ali Bandgani has gone into a lot of that detail in his article. Um, a, a lot seems to turn on the personal characteristics of the individual, their state of health, support network, their age, even their ability to speak the local language. Uh, so the case citation, AS City of Kabul, Afghanistan, CT, 2020, UK, UT, 130, IAC. 
Also in Asylum, a change to Home Office policy on Dublin 3 transfers. Uh, these are described for us by uh, Kate Franchi from Safe Passage. And there's a few changes, but the most important change to the policy is what happens if if the Home Office refuses to accept uh, an asylum seeker under Dublin 3 and the country making the request asks the Home Office to reconsider that refusal. Previously, the Home Office would sort of get around to it eventually. It might take a while, but they they process the reconsideration. Now they seem to be saying, in, in reliance on uh, Court of Justice case, that if they don't get around to looking at the reconsideration request within a fortnight, responsibility for the person bounces back to the other country. So they could just ignore the reconsideration request, effectively, under this new policy. Which It, it seems weird, Colin, that that's allowed under EU law, or that this case kind of allows that. Yeah, it, do, it's, it sounds like a very negative development. I, you know, Dublin is relatively um, short for this world, should we say, given that um, Brexit's happening and there's no talk of any kind of replacement um, once the once the transition period's over. Uh, and, and that's not the only negative change we're seeing in this new updated version of the policy as well. Um, there's, there are several other changes. So if, if you're dealing with these Dublin cases, do take a look at that blog post. It's it's quite important, actually. Absolutely. Next up is nationality law. And there's another thing for EU, EU citizens specifically to be aware of. This time, it's people with settled status rather than pre-settled status and people who want to go on from settled status to take up British citizenship. To naturalise as British requires five years of uh, continuous lawful residence, and it had been thought, or maybe assumed foolishly by immigration lawyers, that having settled status under the settlement scheme would be enough to automatically establish five years continuous lawful residence, because it takes five years to get settled status in the first place. The Home Office has now changed its policy to state categorically that that's not the case and that people might be asked for evidence showing that their residence before being granted settled status was lawful, um, was exercising treaty rights, you were being a worker or self-employed, if you were a student or self-sufficient, that you had the dreaded comprehensive sickness insurance. So a lot of annoyance about that, Colin. And Will it result in a lot of refusals, do you think? Or will the, the, there are references, references in the policy to, you know, being chilled out about it and, you know, exercising discretion and so on? Yeah, I don't know. So I certainly not all immigration lawyers assumed that this was not going to be a problem um, because because I assumed that it was going to be a problem. It, it doesn't come as a surprise that the Home Office is saying this. And and it kind of harks back to the um, the refusals of permanent residence documents that we saw immediately after the Brexit referendum. When, it, when a lot of EU citizens were quite surprised by the, the hard line that the Home Office was apparently taking. The, the good news on this, though, is that there is, um, although the requirements for naturalisation as British are set out in statute, the statute also includes um, some discretion to the Home Office. So um, there might be some room for manoeuvre um, in some of these cases, although you know I don't think the Home Office will exercise discretion just without being asked for it and without reasons being given, potentially. Um, so yeah, it would be interesting to see how this plays out and it could lead to a lot of refusals or it, it might turn out that they're taking a more reasonable approach. We just don't know at this point. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what cases come out of the woodwork on that. Um, we also want to look at a bit more of a niche area of nationality law in terms of having your British citizenship taken away. There was a Supreme Court case on this, uh, a couple of years ago now called Heisage and that found that the Home Office had been wrongly using a process called nullification, which is fewer safeguards, 
to take away people's British citizenship instead of the deprivation process. Uh, and Mr. Heisage's case has now returned to the upper tribunal and been decided. Uh, citation 2020 UKUT 128 IAC. And Carl, what did the, did the tribunal say? I think the first takeaway is that people who had their citizenship nullified and later had it restored to them following the um, Heisage case in the Supreme Court will have been wondering whether they're going to have it taken away again, but by a different legal process, a lawful legal process. Um, and the answer is that certainly in some cases, yes, that is going to happen. Um, although, you know, on the facts of this one, Mr. Mr. Heisage himself, you can see why the Home Office is so interested in um, pursuing him because he was later um, convicted of quite a serious assault, um, quite a violent assault. So you, you can see why he's unpopular with the Home Office, so to speak. Whether that's actually relevant to his case, because the this, the assault took place long after the actual um, deception in his case, that that's a sort of potentially interesting legal issue, which the tribunal kind of skirts around really um, in this particular case. But um, yeah, you know, a number of arguments were put forward um, on whether he should have the benefit of an old policy that um, uh, deprivation action wouldn't be pursued after 14 years, whether there was a kind of leg- legitimate expectation and, and similar kind of um, variations on that point. And the tribunal is basically saying no to all of that um, and, and say that says that um, the deprivation is going to go ahead, I think, in this case. Uh, coming towards the end of our podcast, we've overrun, as is traditional, uh, but we do want to flag a new statement of changes to the immigration rules, which uh, mostly came into force on the 4th of June. The most significant change is a tightening up of the rules on representatives of overseas businesses, the uh, sole rep route, as it's sometimes known. Now, some of that is just putting stuff from the guidance into the actual rules, but there's also a new genuineness assessment, which caseworkers could sort of reject applicants on gut instinct by, by the same things, very subjective. Um, and they're also targeting people with any kind of majority stake in the overseas business in question who tried to use this route. The Home Office obviously thinks there's abuse of the sole rep route going on, but like arguably it's, it's a problem of their own making because the other big route for business people, the innovator visa, is such a disaster that presumably foreign entrepreneurs are sort of trying their luck on, on other routes. Yeah, and, and the kind of genuineness test here is a really weird one. It's kind of whether you genuinely meet the rules. Well, it's like, if you didn't genuinely meet the rules, then you know, they wouldn't have granted it previously anyway. So it's hard to see what the point of that is. But um, to be fair, I, I've, I've seen a couple of emails. I don't know how I end up on all these mailing lists, but I've, I've seen a couple of emails from kind of immigration consultants of dubious proprietary uh, propriety um sort of offering, you know, guaranteed visas and stuff. And, and now they're talking about the, the, the sole rep visa. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't, it's not entirely surprising that um, we're seeing this kind of crackdown, I guess. Useful context. Uh, one aspect of this statement changes that is not coming into force on the 4th of June is it'll come in August is to do with uh, family reunion rights for people from Northern Ireland. And there's a long backstory to this. Uh, but try to cut it fairly short. People who are born in Northern Ireland tend to be dual nationals, Irish and British. This uh, has annoyed people of an Irish nationalist persuasion who don't feel culturally British, but they probably are legally British. And the practical impact of that for them is that they can't use their Irish citizenship to rely on EU family reunification rules. They were 
told they either had to renounce the British citizenship or use the British visa system as British citizens, and that's much more strict. There was a court case and a political campaign, and in the Hill Hunts, the government has now uh, sort of caved in on the family reunion aspect. And the changes mean that anyone born in Northern Ireland, British or Irish, can use the EU settlement scheme to bring in their family members. Uh, so it doesn't resolve the nationality issue of Irish people being born British when they don't want to be, but it's, it solves the practical problem of the family reunion um, rights. Uh, so, and it's worth being aware of for practitioners right across the UK because this applies to people who were born in Northern Ireland, even if they now live in Great Britain, if they live elsewhere in the UK. So um, it's not just a Northern Ireland issue. And finally, we have a quick procedural case to finish with. Uh, the Court of Appeal has confirmed that the slip rule can be used to correct a judge's decision if they accidentally rule the wrong way. Uh, as sometimes happens, you sort of get to the very end of the judgment, which was reasoned in one direction, and then the very last line says allowed instead of uh, refused or whatever the terminology is uh, it's an obvious error and the slip rule can be used to completely reverse the effect of a judgment without a full appeal where that's appropriate uh, that's in the court of appeal confirming a recent tribunal decision uh, the citation Devani 2020 WCA Civ 612 uh, d- does that happen often Carl? I mean I, I've, I know it obviously happens once or twice but... I, I can't remember um, I can't remember ever happening to me and I think when judges dismiss my appeals they really mean it generally speaking so uh, sadly um right i think that's it for for this month um, a quick before we go quick thank you to everybody who's um completed the 2020 reader survey we've had i think over a thousand responses now um we'll keep that open for a few extra days um so if you do have any last responses or thoughts particularly about the podcast then please let us know thank you and goodbye <laughs>